And you can take your Bibles and turn them to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians, chapter 1, as uh, we begin a brand new sermon series through this incredible book, uh, written by the Apostle Paul, probably around the year AD 62, while he was imprisoned in Rome in chains, persecuted for his preaching of the gospel, his preaching of the good news that Jesus came to rescue sinners by dying for sins and being raised for their justification. That's really good news, but that message was offensive to many people, and he made enemies in lots of places, including Ephesus, where Paul had been just a few years before his imprisonment, Ephesus being in uh, Asia Minor. Uh, in that area. Um, Maybe later on in the series, I'll I'll get a map. I'll put it up so you can kind of get your bearings a little bit as far as where Ephesus is. But it was a major city in Asia Minor, and it was bound up in all kinds of of immorality, Uh, everything from the occult to the practice of magic to sexual perversion to the fear of evil spirits to the worship of the Roman emperor. And, uh, and especially, uh, they were devoted to the worship of the goddess Artemis. And, uh, and, and in Ephesus, Paul encountered all kinds of things, from stubborn unbelief and resistance from the local Jewish synagogue to demonic possession. Uh, he, he encountered a, a, a demon-possessed person. There was just all kinds of things. There, there was a, a riot that happened in response to his preaching of the gospel. It was a pretty crazy time. Uh, maybe later on in the series, I'll be able to drop some other uh, little tidbits about Ephesus and, uh, and what was going on there. But miraculously, in spite of all those things happening and in spite of the opposition, many responded to Paul's gospel preaching. And when he departed, he left behind a thriving, growing church. And even, uh, even though his, his enemies eventually managed to get Paul arrested and imprisoned, Paul never forgot about Ephesus. Uh, He was always deeply concerned about the church there. In fact, in his final face-to-face conversation with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, a very moving chapter, uh, he warns them that false teachers from within their own church would rise up and try to steal uh, people away from the flock and draw disciples after themselves. And, and while he was never able to return to Ephesus for another extended period of ministry, uh, Paul, in Rome, in chains for the gospel, and moved by the Holy Spirit, knows that it's time now to minister to Ephesus again in a different way, and he picks up his pen and he writes to these Ephesian believers. And it's interesting that as he writes… Paul, who was so concerned about the Ephesians being swayed by false teachers and falling back into sin and immorality, it's very interesting that he would address that concern by writing a letter about identity. Paul sees the spiritual safeguard of the Ephesians being closely connected to their understanding of who they really are, because identity matters. That's true whether you're, you're in first century Ephesus or whether you're in 21st century America. Who you think you are, uh, what your sense of identity revolves around will be the decisive controlling factor in your life. For example, if your identity is bound up in being 
a wife and a mom, and you view that as the core of who you are, that's going to have significant implications in what you do, uh, the choices you make, the, your priorities, and, and so on. Uh, but think about this. If that's the center of your identity, what happens when your kids don't turn out the way that you want them to? Or when your marriage isn't everything that it should be? Uh, what happens when those things become more important than God? Or, or think about if your identity is bound up in your job. Uh, that's going to have major implications. You can survey the wreckage of a thousand broken homes for proof of the consequences for having that kind of identity. What's more, what happens if you lose your job or if you hate your job? Or as we think about the sexual revolution that's been sweeping our culture, wh- whether it's uh, uh, so-called gay marriage or transgenderism, if you believe the core of who you are is bound up in your sexual feelings, in your sexual orientation, in your, in your sexual urges, that's going to have a profound ramification in your life. That's going to affect the trajectory of your life. But, but what happens when the promises of the sexual revolution fail to deliver, as they always do in the end? But it's not just people out there who are confused about identity and where it's to be found. We Christians have a hard time getting identity right. Often our identity is bound up in the in the wrong things. We tend to anchor our identity in people or places or earthly things and instead of in Jesus Christ. And when our sense of identity revolves around anything other than Christ, we have moved from we have moved into idolatry. Uh, we are worshiping something else. Paul Tripp um, says that Christians suffer from identity amnesia. And when you have confusion of identity, he says you are a sitting duck for sin's insanity. When you you have confusion of identity, you are a sitting duck for sin's insanity. And that's why I'm so excited to be launching the new year with a sermon series in Ephesians, because I think for some of you, this series is going to be a turning point. I think for some of you, it's going to be a spiritual game changer. And I'm praying that in this study, you're going to have the same experience that John McKay had in 1903. John McKay, who later on went on to be president of Princeton Theological Seminary, he He wandered out into the hills of the Scottish Highlands at age 14 with his Bible, and he read through the book of Ephesians, and it was a life-changing experience for him. Now, why? Why was it? Why? What what did this young man see that was so powerfully life-changing? Well, he says, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes towards other people. I loved God. Jesus became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. And I'm going to be praying for you over the next few weeks that the book of Ephesians will likewise powerfully change and move you and help your eyes to be open in a way that you're going to see everything differently. Because once your vision is clear, everything in your life is going to change. I'm praying that unbelievers among us would be spiritually quickened and made alive, and I'm praying that believers among us would experience a new depth of spiritual maturity and strength that that will will lead to the year 2020 being the most powerful year 
of your life in regards to your walk with God. And, and yeah, I'm aiming high here. <laughs> uh, I'm aiming really high. I'm setting big expectations, but our God is a big God. And I always ask God for big things for you. And I'll continue to do so. And I look forward to seeing how God's going to move in our church these next few weeks through our study of Ephesians. And, and, and as we go through this week by week, I would love to hear from you. Uh, and, and, and some of you are already good about doing this, but I'd love to hear from you directly as far as how God is impacting you and changing you through the book of Ephesians. Well, with all that said, let's go ahead and take our first steps on this path together right now. Please stand with me out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great and glorious God. We are in Ephesians chapter 1, and we are going to start with verse 1 and read on down through verse 6. Paul writes, in chains, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved." Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of rich stuff in these first six verses. (laughs) We're diving into the deep end of the pool here right away. And I pray that you would do what I can't do, which is open the eyes of the hearts of my friends here this morning to see all of the glorious riches that are here, to see it and to perceive it, to embrace it, to love it, and to be changed by it. So, Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would begin a good work in us right now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, many times we approach the Bible eager for application, right? One application. Give me lists Give me some things to do. I'm not interested in doctrine or theology. I don't have time for all that stuff. I just need some practical help right now. And and we sometimes see theology as academic and not practical. That's why probably more people have spent time in Ephesians 4 through 6 than in Ephesians 1 through 3. It's why for some Christians, the only part of Ephesians they've ever read is the second half of Ephesians chapter 5, which is the marriage section of Ephesians. They want help with marriage, and so they just skip over the rest of it, and they go right there. Friends, that's a huge mistake. It's a very huge mistake. Application is never meant to be separate from theology. They're meant to go hand in hand. While theology without application is cold, dead academics, application without theology is like constructing a building with no foundation. I don't know a lot about construction. Some of you do. But what I do know is that if you're building a building, you better get that foundation right. It better be strong. 
It better be solid or else the structure is going to collapse. And just like you can't build a building without a solid foundation, you can't build a Christian life that stands tall and unshakable apart from laying down strong theological foundations to build that life on. And Paul in Ephesians is going to show us how theology and application go together. The layout of the book is really simple and really easy to understand. It's one reason why I love preaching through Ephesians. It's real easy. Um, The first three chapters, Paul lays down rich, rock-solid theological teaching, and that's the foundation. And then the final three chapters, he builds on that foundation, chapters four through six, is the practical application of the theology that he just taught you about. So if you love theology and doctrine, you're going to love the first half of this book. But it's all going to be useless head knowledge if we don't press in to chapters four through six. Uh, What's the use of a foundation with no building on it? And if you, on the other hand, love practical application, be patient as we go through the first half of the book, because chapters one through three is going to lay down that strong foundation that you need to experience the practical and powerful Christian life as described in the second half of the book. And the most important thing in the foundation is realizing that the Christian life doesn't begin with you. And it's not ultimately about you. This is where, this is where Paul begins. And, and this is huge. Because if you, if you mess this part of the foundation up, you're going to end up with a crooked building or an unsafe structure that won't make it through the storms and trials and challenges of life. And so Paul begins by reminding us that your Christian life begins with and is ultimately about God. And he explains this by sharing three foundational truths regarding what God has done for believers and how that radically impacts your true identity. And the first thing that I want you to see in this text is that you were chosen by God the Father. You were chosen by God the Father. Look with me at verse 3. Paul says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. If you are a believer, you didn't become a Christian by accident. It wasn't just some random kind of thing. You are sitting here today as a Christian because, the Bible says, God chose you. Now, you may be sitting there saying, well, wait a minute. I explicitly remember choosing God. I surrendered my life to Jesus. How can you tell me I didn't choose Christ? Well, that's not quite what I said. Got got to listen closely here. I didn't say you didn't choose Christ. Of course you chose Christ. I too explicitly remember the night that I chose Christ in the fall of 1991 as a confused, messed up, sinful, and moral 20-year-old, desperate and hungry for a changed life, and I chose Jesus. I remember saying to Jesus, I, I, I surrender my life to you. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to follow you. Folks, there is no one that is saved apart from them choosing Christ. But that's not Paul's point here. There are other scriptures that talk about the necessity of of you receiving Christ. But but this is not the scripture about that. This is about something else. 
you choosing Christ is not where Paul wants you to go as, as his purpose in this opening section is to lead you to a sense of thanksgiving and a sense of praise to whom? Paul is not praising you, and he is not thanking you for choosing God. In fact, nowhere in the Bible is man thanked or congratulated or patted on the back for deciding to follow Jesus. Why? Because Paul tells us here that something significant happened before you could even make that choice. Indeed, before you were born, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The reason why God gets the credit for this and not you is because the only reason you chose God is because He first chose you. You didn't come to Christ because you were better or smarter or had more willpower or insight or were holier than anybody else. Paul tells you, in fact, in the next chapter that before you came to Christ, you were spiritually dead. You were slave to sin. You were hostile to God. You needed help. And that help came when God chose to sovereignly work a miracle in your heart. He changed your heart so that you came to a point where you actually wanted to say yes to Christ when you used to say no. And Paul says that God chose to do that work in you before the foundation of the world. One commentator writes the implication of this is that there has never been a time in the history of the universe when your name was not on the heart of God as one of His beloved. Christian person, I want you to think about that. that that's that, that's mind-blowing, that, that there, there has never been a time in which His love was not set on you. And, and friends, we can, we can just let our minds… Can, can we just let our minds be blown by that for just a moment? Because… We, we read these Bible verses, and they become so familiar to us that we just kind of skim over them, and we're like, yeah, yeah, God chose us in Him before the foundation, we're blah, blah, blah. And we just kind of fly over it because we've read it so much, and, and we don't let the text hit us between the eyes like it was originally intended to. Think about this. As a Christian, your identity is anchored in the fact that before you were even born, God knew you. He knew you were coming into this world, and think about this, He knew how messed up and dysfunctional you would be. He, he knew that. He knew all about your sins. He knew all of the bad things that you would do. He knew all of the skeletons that you have in your closet. He knows all about the sinful things that, that if other people knew about them, you would be ashamed. He knew that you would be a sinner and hate Him and rebel against Him. He knew all of your deepest and darkest secrets. And guess what? He said, you're mine. He said, I want you. He said, I know everything that you're going to do, and I'm going to save you anyway. Yes, thank you, Jesus. Praise Him. Glorify. You're already responding to the the point of this first paragraph in Ephesians. Christian brother, Christian sister, He chose you. Now, one of the amazing implications of this is that what God has done for you had absolutely nothing to do with how good or how bad you were. 
His election and choosing of you is unconditional. It's not about your performance. It's not about your inherent goodness and your ability to do the right thing. And thank God that it is not. Because if election was conditional, who would be saved? Nobody. Scripture says, there is none who do good. No, not one. There is no one who seeks God. And if no one is seeking God, then that means that if anybody is going to save, who has to do the seeking? God does. God does. You are saved not because you first went after God. You are saved because He first went after you. He chose you. When I was a kid, I, I loved to play sports with my friends. I loved it. But you know one thing I hated about all of that? I hated it when we would divide up for teams for a game. I don't know if you remember this ritual when you were a kid. If you've experienced anything like this, you get two team captains. And these team captains typically are the, you know, the buffest, most awesomeness, awesomeness, most awesome people you know, on the, on the block, these are, these are the awesome kids, and they take turns picking the other kids one by one. And, and, and who gets chosen first? You know who gets chosen first. The very best and most talented and most athletic kids always get picked first, don't they? Now, I know this is going to come as a shock to some of you, but I was never the kid that got picked first. And I know you're, you're looking at me, you're like, Deemer, I'm just, I'm, I see that specimen up there, and I just, I'm finding that very hard to believe that they would just pass over you like that. But believe it or not, they did. I never even got picked in the middle. Usually, how it worked out was after all the other kids had been chosen, it would come down between me and some other poor, unathletic, pathetic, clumsy kid. I hated that. But let's face it, I I can't blame them. (laughs) I can't blame them for not tripping over themselves to pick me. Nobody wants the short, slow, pudgy, unathletic kid on their team if they're playing basketball or baseball or football or kickball or whatever it might be. The team captains made choices of who would be their first picks, and they were conditional choices. But guess what? That's not how God operates. God doesn't choose people based on their ability to be a good person. He doesn't choose based on how smart you'll be, or how good looking you'll be, or how popular you are with other people, or based on your talents, or anything like that. You know, God God didn't look look and just look at you and say, oh man, I I just, that person is irresistible. Gotta, Gotta have them on my team. That's not how how it works. As far as God is concerned, we're all a mess. We're all losers. And none of us deserves to be chosen to be on the team. So, So God's choice of you is not conditional. Instead, it is grace. That's exactly why Paul says in the next chapter of Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. You see, the kid who gets picked first for the team has something to boast about. I got picked because I'm a good three-point shooter. I I got picked because I've worked hard to be as good as I am 
at baseball. Uh, I, I've, I, I'm, I got picked because I'm better than short, pudgy, out of shape Deemer Webb. That's how it works in the world of sports. It's not how it works in regards to God's choice of you. It's not how it works in the spiritual realm. In the spiritual realm, the playing field is level. No one's good, not even one. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We're all equally deserving of hell. Yet God chose you anyway. He chose you anyway. But it's not just that God chose you to rescue you from hell. Paul says that you were chosen to be something very specific. He says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. When we became Christians, God didn't just forgive us. God began a process in us called sanctification, where he begins transforming us and empowering us to grow in holiness bit by bit by bit, where we begin to love God more and sin less. And this growth is, is climax when we get to heaven, where we will be totally without sin. And, and this concept of sanctification is related to my next point, is that you were adopted by God the Father. You were adopted by God the Father. Verse 5 says, He predestined us for adoption as sons. Here Paul is telling us that we've been more than simply saved. We've been welcomed. We've been welcomed into God's family. We are considered sons of God. Now, lest any ladies think that this talk of sons smacks of male chauvinism, recognize that Paul is, is doing something remarkable here in writing in this way. It's not chauvinism. He's actually blowing the hinges off of first century Greco-Roman chauvinism. Anyone in the ancient Greco-Roman world that Paul was writing to would know that when you're adopted into a family as a son, you're adopted in and receive a full share in the inheritance of the father of that family. It was the sons that were the favored ones. And, and, if, and if you're adopted, you, you get in on that. That was true of adopted sons, not of adopted daughters. And so here we get, we've got Paul doing something that would have blown the minds of people in that culture as Paul is boldly declaring, sisters in Christ, you have a full share in the inheritance of the elder brother, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are all counted as sons and receive a full share in all the blessings which belong to his son, the inexhaustible blessings and benefits of Jesus Christ. Paul says to both brothers and sisters in Christ that God predestined us for adoption as sons. He predestined us. That's a controversial phrase. Anybody want to talk about predestination? It's, but, but it's really not a hard to understand phrase. What does predestinate mean? Well, just, just break the word up. It means that God had a pre-planned destination already in his mind when he determined to save you. God predetermined that your final destination would be a seat at his table as a full-fledged member of his household, having been adopted into his family. He, he predetermined that he was going to be your father and that you're going to be his child. 
And, and what, what does that mean exactly? What, what are the ramifications of that? In the ancient world, sonship was bound up with a lot of functional things, unlike today. Today, very often in our modern culture, sons end up doing things that are very different vocationally than, than what their fathers did. That wasn't the case in the first century. Paul was writing in a world where almost without exception, sons did exactly what their fathers did. So if your father was a shepherd, you were going to be a shepherd. If your father was a carpenter, you're a carpenter. If your father was a baker, you're a baker. If your father's a candlestick maker, that's what you're going to be. It was, it was assumed that you take the same path and follow in your father's footsteps, doing exactly what he did. Nobody even gave it a second thought. And it's out of this cultural context that comes biblical idioms that reflect the functionality of sonship. For example, like in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, where Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, why? Because God Himself is a peacemaker. He restores peace between Himself and sinners. Therefore, if you're really a child of God, well, then you will do what your Father does. Of course, it works in the other direction too, which is why Jesus calls the religious leaders in John 8 sons of the devil. Why? Because they hated Jesus. They had murder in their hearts. You will do whatever your father does. Of course, Jesus is the son par excellence, right? He said, truly I say to you, whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Now, of course, Jesus is God. So there's going to be some ways that he can imitate the Father uh, in ways that you're never going to be able to. Nobody in here has ever created a universe lately. But to the degree that it is in our nature as human beings, God's purpose for you is to do what the Father does because you are his child. You are not just people whom God has saved from sin. You are instead considered as sons, and sonship implies not just privilege, but responsibility. And part of your responsibility is to show a family resemblance, to show a family resemblance in how you live and how you act and how you think. And ultimately, God's goal in your adoption is for you to increasingly take on the resemblance of your elder brother in the family, Jesus to take on that resemblance more and more and more. And this grand purpose of God is clearly articulated in Romans 8.28. And many of you have that verse memorized. Some of you might even be your favorite verse. Uh, verse Romans 8.28, that talks about how God works all things together for good. Now, many of us tend to take that verse and to isolate that verse and, and just use it as a kind of catch-all general panacea to make us feel okay when things are going bad in life. But the point of that verse, the point of verse 28 in Romans 8 is not, hey, keep your chin up. Just just hang in there and it's going to get better, which is often how Christians use that verse. Instead, look, look closely at verse 28, but don't, don't stop at verse 28. You got to keep going. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for God, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, the ultimate good that God is seeking for you is that as a child of God, you will be conformed to the image of Christ. And so, that means that all of the things that are happening in your life, both the good things and the bad things, uh, both, both the, the pleasurable things and the painful things, God is working all of these things to serve His purpose in bringing you into conformity with the image of Jesus, who is a perfect reflection of God the Father. Uh, look what else Paul says in verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Through this life, God is working all things together for your good on your behalf, making you more and more and more like Jesus until the day that you are glorified in heaven and you are just like Jesus. That's the good that Paul is talking about in Romans 8. He's, he's thinking about something very, very specific, and, and that is good. I can't think of anything better than to be just like Jesus. And notice, I mean, this is incredible. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's all guaranteed here. Um, those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. So, if you are saved, that means you're justified. And so, so think about that. If you're, if you're saved, that means you were first predestined. And it also means that if you're saved, you will be glorified. That's heaven. So, all that He justifies will be glorified. There's no room in there for losing salvation. There is no room. That is an unbroken chain. If God predestined you here, then He glorifies you here. Period. This means that if you are in Christ you don't have to be fearful that that won't come to pass. If, if God's choice of you is unconditional, that means you don't have to worry about messing it up and losing your salvation. God, folks, God already knew all the bad stuff you would do before you were born, and He chose you anyway. And according to this, He chose you for the purpose of glorification. Is God, is God a failure? Is He going to fail at that? Is this the one promise in the Bible that is kind of iffy? If you are an adopted child of God, this means that you will never be rejected because a perfect father does not kick his kids out of the family. Out of the family. Uh, instead, a perfect father, what does a perfect father do? A perfect father trains and disciplines his children so that they will be everything that they're supposed to be. And sometimes that discipline can be painful. But, but even when God disciplines us, it is meant to work towards that grand and glorious end 
of glorification, of resembling Christ. And so, we've got this wonderful encouragement in Hebrews chapter 12, my son, do not regard the discipline of the Lord lightly, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Think about this. If, um, if you have children, little children, and I, and I and invite you, you and your whole family over to my house, and, um, and your kids act like hooligans, and I'm not saying that your kids ever do. This is just for illustrative purposes only. But let's say, let's pretend that they are unruly and disrespectful and disobedient. Well, if that happens, I'm not going to be spanking any of your children. Some of you may want me to do that. Uh, some of you may say, Deemer, just let them have it, man. I'm not going to do that. Why? Because they're not my children. Uh, I'm going to turn those children over to you to deal with them as you see fit. Now, let's, let, let's go further and say that after your kids leave... Elijah starts misbehaving. My son Elijah starts misbehaving in the exact same way. Not that Elijah ever misbehaves. He does, but I love him. And, and, and let's, let's say that he, he does, and he misbehaves in the same way that those other kids did, that your kids did, and in response, then I discipline him. <laughs> and he turns to me and says, Dad, that is not fair. You didn't do anything to those other kids when they were here, and you're doing this to me? And my response would be, I, I know. They are my children. You are. And, and I'm responsible to look after you, to protect you, to provide for you, and also to train you. You are my child, which means you have the privilege of being disciplined by me. My kids may not feel like it's a privilege at that time. By the way, I've actually used that line on my kids before. You have the privilege of being disciplined by me. Um, yeah, you can use that line. That's not copyrighted. You can use that. Um, it doesn't feel like a privilege at the time, but it actually is. And, and because the discipline and the correction is a sign of whom they belong to. And it's a demonstration of love from their father. Author of Hebrews says that when we are disciplined by God, it shows that we are sons of God and that that discipline, that training, that chastisement is actually good for His children. Author of Hebrews says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. That, 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 that's that Romans 8.28 goal, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So our discipline is not coming to us because God is mean. 
Instead, the discipline will result in us sharing in God's holiness and yielding a peaceful fruit of righteousness. It will result in further conformity to the image of Christ. And there's not a single thing that happens in your life that does not fall into God's predestined purpose for you because God the Father works all things together for the good of you, His child. Now, if you see the core of your identity as a mom or in terms of your career or in terms of your sexual orientation or in terms of your possessions, that's going to have a radical influence on how you live your life and it's going to influence you for the worse. But if you see the core of your identity as a son or daughter of God, one who has been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, one who's been adopted into God's family, one whose life is meant to be geared towards imaging the Father, geared towards holiness, towards Christ's conformity, that's going to impact your choices and your decisions and how you deal with your spouse when they let you down and how you navigate and think about trials and and painful times that come into your life and and how you handle disappointment or anger or temptation or fear or how you behave in the workplace as you begin to, to, to think about all these things in light of your identity. And you begin to ask yourself, well, how, how is how I'm living in this situation imaging my father? Am I bearing a family resemblance or not? You know, a lot of people argue over the doctrine of election and predestination. They analyze and they scrutinize and they debate and fight with their brothers and sisters over what this notion of God choosing us actually means. But, friends, if, if fighting a theological cage match is your primary response to the doctrine of election and predestination, you have totally missed the point. And I don't care if you are an Arminian or a Calvinist or somewhere in between. Paul says we are chosen and predestined. Why? To argue about it? No. Look at verse 6. These things are not meant to lead to fights and church splits, but to the praise of His glorious grace. So many people get discouraged over the doctrine of predestination, which tells me that they really don't get the point. Because Paul is writing the church in Ephesus about these things, not to discourage them, but so that they would be tremendously encouraged. This isn't supposed to be something to be upset about or down about, and it's certainly not something uh, meant to, to argue about. It's supposed to be something that should lead us to fall down on our faces and praise God for. It's a truth that we should revel in. That's the whole point of these first few verses of Ephesians. Listen, He has, he has chosen you, <laughs> you, an unworthy, undeserving sinner. And because He has chosen you and predestined you to glory, be assured that even when you do fail, even when you don't bear that family resemblance, even on your worst day, you will never be cast out by God. Being a son or daughter means you will always have a seat at the table with the Father. He is ever patient. He is ever kind. He is ever loving. And He He has forever had his heart set on you even before the universe was made. 
He knew about every bad thing that you would do, and he chose you anyway. And he's totally committed to your good, which is why Paul says in Philippians 1 that he who began a good work in you might bring it to completion. Is that what he said? He who began a good work in you maybe will complete it if you're lucky. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If he loses anybody, he has lied in Philippians 1.6. You are chosen by God the Father. You are adopted by God the Father. Even more, you are delighted in by God the Father. That's my final point. You are delighted in by God the Father. Verse 4, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That phrase, according to the purpose of his will, uh, the Greek word the, the, the ESV translates as purpose is eudokia. That's a fun word to say, eudokia. Kind of just lights my mood right there. That's a good word. Uh, Actually, I like the King James translation of Eudokia better because I think it captures the essence of that word better. King James says, according to the good pleasure of his will. I like that. One commentator notes that this word signifies not simply the purpose of God, but also the delight that he takes in his plans. It has warm and personal connotations and draws attention to God's willingness and joy to do good. His choosing many to come into a special relationship with himself was in keeping with what he delighted to do and with his saving plan. He enjoys parting riches to many children. Some people have this picture of God as some old, stingy, crusty curmudgeon. And if you call on him, maybe if you catch him in a good mood, he just might respond. But we don't see in the Scriptures a God who is reluctant to save God, God's not like, well, I suppose I'm supposed to be a good God, and I'm supposed to be the Savior and everything. That's what they call me, and I'll save a few of those wretches, even though I'd just rather squash them all, but, but I'm supposed to be God, and I'm supposed to be a God of mercy, and, and, and I don't have to like it, but I'll do it. I'll do it. Make me look good. That kind of God has more in common with the gods of Greek mythology than with the Bible. The true God revealed in Scripture is not a grumpy old man who is dispassionately or begrudgingly saving out of duty. Instead, it gives God great pleasure, great overflowing and abundant joy to extend mercy to us. God's not just someone who is, He's not someone who is just saving you. He is somebody who is joyfully and enthusiastically loving and delighting in you. And some of you need that word right now. God has one natural son from eternity past Jesus Christ, the eternal son. And when Jesus became a man and he was baptized, the Scriptures record the voice of God booming from the heavens with great delight in His Son. And God the Father cried out in that moment, this is my Son, in Him I am well pleased. In Him I delight. Now, check this out. For those of us who are adopted by God the Father, 
clothed with Christ's clothing, clothed with Christ's righteousness, our identity being bound up in Christ, God looks at you and He says to you with delight, this is my child. And in Him and in her, I am well pleased. Some of you have a hard time believing that's true because of just the false images that you have of God. Listen to what what the prophet Zephaniah writes uh, about God's attitude about those whom He redeems. He says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I have often wondered what the singing of God sounds like. I wonder, I wonder if you ever think of God's disposition about you in that way. I wonder if you ever do. I wonder if you ever think of God as somebody who is well-pleased with you. I wonder if you ever think about God as one who rejoices over you with gladness. If not, you need to align your thinking about God according to the full revelation about Him in the Bible. If you have a bad earthly father, watch out for this. Be careful to, to not project his flaws and his dysfunction onto God. That's what a lot of people do. They think of God in terms of their dad. God is not like your imperfect dad. Instead, your dad failed to be like the perfect God. And when we are adopted by this perfect God, we obtain full, full status in the family of God, chosen by God the Father to be holy and blameless, to receive the status of sonship in His family, to to be a child whom the Father takes great delight in. Folks, this is who you are. This is your identity. And our response to this should not be arrogance or boasting, because His choice of you had nothing to do with how great or worthy you are, but how great in mercy, our God is. And our response should not be debating about predestination. Our response should be worship. It should be Ephesians 1.3, where we cry out with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That should be our response to all this. Now, when I, when I say you know, I'm talking about arguing over predestination or debating over it. I'm not saying that you can't have conversations with people about it. I'm not saying that you can't ponder the, the deep things of God. I'm not saying that you can't wrestle with, with you get a brother or sister and kind of wrestle through the scriptures with them and try to figure out what God is really saying. I'm not saying that at all. But, but I'm, I'm just saying that if, if that, is, that is it, if that, if that is like our response and our only response to, to the doctrines laid out here, then then we have, we have missed the point. We, we've missed Paul's purpose in doing this because the, the purpose of Paul is encouragement and praise. And, and, and maybe we need to start there before we even try to think any, any deeper about this and, and not overcomplicate this. Sometimes we overcomplicate things. Every single Christian in this room ought to be praising God for the truths that Paul is unfolding for us here in Ephesians 1. And if we're not praising, God help us. So if your identity then is anchored in all these wonderful things, how how does this change how you live? 
How's it going to alter how you live in about 15 minutes when you walk out of this room? How's it going to affect how you do marriage, how you do parenting, how you do your job, how you deal with depression and discouragement and anger and addiction and trials and all those sorts of things? I'm not going to give you a long list of answers right now. I'm going to let you wrestle with that and ponder that in the days to come. I actually don't think it's that complicated. I I just think a lot of times we don't spend time thinking about how we are to live life in light of our true identity. And as we go to the book of Ephesians, we'll eventually get to some application right in the book itself for, for some help. So stay tuned for that. But we're laying down the foundation right now for, for a mighty superstructure to build our lives on. And obviously, of course, as your pastor, I'd love to talk with you any time about exploring what life looks like for you in light of your true identity in Christ. So call me and, or email me or drop into the office or invite me over to your house for free food or whatever. Uh, let's, just, let's just talk and let's just keep the conversation going. I'm, I'm happy to do that. As one of your shepherds, that's what I'm here for. Now, in closing, a quick question. I'm almost done, but I have to answer this. How, how can God do all this? How, how can He make sinners into sons? And Paul gives the answer in Ephesians 1.7. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We're going to explore that verse more next week, so this is just a little bit of a preview. But suffice to say for now that God sent His righteous Son, Jesus, to die on a cross so that unrighteous sinners can become sons. Through the shed blood of Jesus, the debt of sinners is paid, and all who trust in Jesus have that payment applied to their spiritual account uh, so that they owe God nothing anymore and are free from condemnation. That means that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that can all change in an instant depending on what you'll do with Jesus. Will you receive and trust in Jesus and His payment for your sins? And if the answer is yes, then welcome to the family. But regardless if whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or if you just received Christ five seconds ago, if you missed everything else said in this sermon, don't miss this. Christian brother, Christian sister, you are chosen. You are adopted. And you are delighted in. Praise God. Praise God for His glorious grace. Let's pray. Oh, great God. (laughs) What amazing, mind-blowing truths in these first six verses of Ephesians. And this is just the beginning of the journey in this great book. And so I pray that over the next several weeks, you would be going before us and that you would prepare a rich and mighty blessing, a feast in your Word, and that you would use the book of Ephesians to be transformative in our lives as individuals, but also corporately, collectively, as a church body. Thank you for your kindness and thank you for your grace. We, the adopted ones, thank you. And we thank you that your goal for us that will not fail is to make us just like our elder brother Jesus. We look forward to the completion of the work that you'll do in us and that you are doing right now. In Jesus' name. Amen.